Hey everyone, so recently I've been doing this series over the last couple of months on metamodernism. I've been talking about it quite a bit. Maybe you watched my Why is Creed making a comeback video, and that was really not just about Creed, it was about metamodernism and the metamodern shift. As I've been talking about this, one of the most common recurring questions I've been getting from listeners is, Paul, I get this stuff, it's really interesting, but what's the impact of metamodernism on Christianity? As many of my listeners, if not most of my listeners, come from some sort of Christian tradition or Christian background, how do we navigate the metamodern shift if we're trying to be a follower of Jesus? The shift of metamodernism, what it means for Christianity in the West. Well, in case it's been a while since you've gone through my previous lectures on metamodernism, uh, and I'll leave a link for those in the description below, I think it'll be helpful for us to just do a little basic review on some of these concepts, and then we'll connect it to the bigger question of what all this means for Christianity, for followers of Jesus, of all different Christian traditions. Metamodernism is a relatively recent cultural and philosophical movement that emerges primarily as a response to postmodernism. Postmodernism often embraced skepticism, irony, and deconstruction of grand narratives. But metamodernism tries to do something different. Metamodernism tries to seek a new pathway forward for room for sincerity, hope, meaning for actually finding a narrative to live within. It does that, however, without completely abandoning the ideas and values of postmodernism. It's not going to get rid of like the vocabulary of postmodernism. It's not going to get rid of completely the aesthetic of postmodern art and storytelling, but it's going to go through those in an effort to get at something else to get at positive reconstruction of meaning, and to get at what we may think of as some of the values, stories, ideals that have been lost in modernism as we went through the postmodern phase. So it's not a complete abandonment of postmodernism, and it's not just like a nostalgic return to modernism. It's not that. It's the oscillation between the best or what's perceived to be as the best of both worlds, the best of modernism and the best of postmodernism. So maybe you're listening to this and watching this and you're going, Paul, modernism, postmodernism, metamodernism, I'm not necessarily familiar with all of these philosophical concepts. Probably the best way for you to get some of the distinctives of each of these movements is for me to talk about examples of modern, postmodern, and metamodern storytelling and the arts. That's probably the best way for you to get at some of the flavors of each. And I think that's far simpler than me giving you like a, a lecture with here's the primary three or four essential philosophers. We can certainly do that. I mentioned some of that in, in the series, but I think it might be more helpful for most of you to kind of revisit, for some of you who've already gone through my earlier lectures, to revisit some of the examples of modern, postmodern and metamodern storytelling. And for others of you, this might be your first introduction. And uh, seeing these examples might be helpful. I feel the need for me for speed. 
So if we're going to talk about modern storytelling and the values of modernism embedded into a story, I think one of the best examples we can point to, and I've talked about this already in the series, is the original Top Gun movie starring Tom Cruise. When you hear the word modernism, one of the first things I want you to think of is post-Reformation, so post-Protestant Reformation, and Enlightenment values. This is about the ability of the individual to locate truth up and against failed institutions of hierarchical authority. The same impulse that celebrates Martin Luther posting his 95 theses and preaching justification by faith, justification of the individual by their individual faith alone in the individual Jesus Christ as the individual sole mediator between God and man, the sole mediator of grace and truth without need for consent or approval from the institution of the Roman Catholic Church, when you think about Martin Luther and all of that embedded in the Reformation story, you can also see why a movie like Top Gun is so appealing. That might seem like a stretch, but think about it. It's the same impulse that celebrates Martin Luther as a lone voice of truth. Now, again, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're obviously not celebrating Luther in the same way, but many of you come from Protestant traditions like me. So if you're celebrating the Reformation and Luther's story, you can also see why like the story of Top Gun is appealing to you. Because Maverick is doing the same thing. You're like, no, he's not. But just follow the deeper patterns and threads here. We've got a lone individual who kind of trusts his gut, his ability to locate the truth up and against institutions that are either corrupt, or if they're not corrupt, they're just not competent. And so their lack of competency, and in some cases corruption, certainly Luther was getting at the corruption of the Catholic Church, or what he perceived to be the corruption of the Catholic Church. Sometimes it's not just corruption, but the key thing is like the institutions, the hierarchical institutions are, are obscuring the view of the truth that the individual actually can find in and of themselves. So Top Gun is a great example of that. Maverick trusts his gut. He goes up and against his uh, superior naval officers. And I think it's the Navy, right? It's not the Air Force. It's the Navy. Yeah, it's the Navy. He goes up and against them, right? Think of the same impulse that celebrates Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am ethos, the enlightenment ideals uh, summarized in Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, enshrining the God-given rights of the individual to rebel against the unjust hierarchical authority. It's the same impulse in that from Descartes to Locke to Jefferson to the American Revolution. All of that you can see embedded within the story of Maverick as a hero in Top Gun. It's not the same items, plot items, but it's the same underlying ethos. It's the same spirit underneath it all. The hero of the modern story is celebrated as a hero because of the value of in, within modernism, the post-Reformation, the post-Enlightenment value of meritocracy 
over aristocracy. So the value of the individual to work hard to achieve his status versus being born into a particular class or demographic that grants you status, confers upon you status just because you were born into that, that strata of the social hierarchy. A meritocracy emphasizes you as the individual achieving your status. So you can see that's a key idea of modernist value. And you can see that in modernist storytelling. The hero of the modern story is celebrated as a hero because of his ability to play well by the rules of the meritocracy and to reject the aristocracy. And this story, these kinds of stories often, most often seem sincere to the core. I mean, Top Gun is not self-aware movie at all. It is so uber sincere. Painfully so, if maybe you grew up within the, the heyday of postmodern storytelling, you might look back on a movie like Top Gun and you might go, it's so naive. Uh, it's, it's preachy. In pop culture comedy, you could look at The Cosby Show and Home Improvement. These are some of the examples we've talked about before in the podcast. Uh, examples of modern storytelling within the genre of pop culture comedy. The Huxtables in The Cosby Show earned their hero status. How did they earn their hero status? They earned their hero status in society through their merits. They participated well within the structure of the meritocracy. Mr. and Mrs. Huxtable have gone through many, many years of schooling to become successful doctor and a successful lawyer. The color of their skin, this is like, again, we, the, the Martin Luther King ethos is still very much a meritocracy, that we want to judge people by the contents of their character and not merely by the color and the appearance of these external factors in which people are born into the world with. It's a rejection of aristocracy. And so Mr. and Mrs. Huxtable are a rejection or attempt to be an eject, rejection of aristocracy. They're always preaching to their kids the value of education. You got to go to school over and over again. I mean, that's one of the core repeating themes as you watch The Cosby Show. They are going to have value in society, not because they were born as the, the son or daughter of a successful doctor and lawyer. They're going to have value if they blaze their own trail. They get their own education. And most Americans at the time of the Cosby show in its heyday, they, they celebrated the show and its values long before the first black president in American history. The comedy is all in service to this uber sincere attempt at transmitting positive modernist moral messages. And if you watch it back now, especially those of you that have kind of lived through maybe your most formative heyday, the formative heyday of you consuming pop culture stories, maybe that was during the, like the, the, the heightened um, postmodern storytelling period in pop culture, you know, go from like the mid nineties into the two thousands and into the early 2010s. If you lived through that and you didn't like grow up watching the Cosby show and you go back and you watch the Cosby show, it's going to seem really, really preachy to you. It's going to seem syrupy. 
the sincerity is going to come across as naivete. You wouldn't have felt that in the 80s and in the early 90s, unless you were like really into postmodern philosophy. But by and large part, the broader pop culture, they weren't feeling that at that time. Home Improvement with Tim the Toolman Taylor is the same way. Tim's a pretty good dad by all accounts. He's built for himself his own fairly successful local cable TV show. Uh, he's got this like maverick-like instinct to trust his gut up and against maybe some conventional wisdom, which often leads to self-inflicted injuries involving power tools. He's even got, you know, some of the best of the traditional hero's journey. You know, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey myth. You can see some of that even in Home Improvement where Tim has this neighbor who is the the wise old sage. He's mainly faceless throughout the show. But if you watch like Home Improvement, you watch the Cosby show, you watch them side by side, and you put it up against something like Seinfeld, you go... Well, Seinfeld was kind of self-aware. Home Improvement, The Cosby Show, it's not self-aware at all. There's no incorporation of, of irony. Many of these aesthetic and vocabulary choices of postmodern storytelling, you don't see that present in these stories. And you see that becoming more of the norm as we get into the 90s and into the 2000s. And so if you grew up in the postmodern heyday of storytelling and pop culture, that sort of stuff is going to feel cringy to you. The postmodern impulse is driven by the philosophical assumption that these sincere-sounding, overarching meta-narratives are simply masking a play for power or colonial subjugation. Like postmodern philosophy, which emerged as a deconstructive movement questioning and critiquing the metaphysics and values of modernism and the Enlightenment. Films like Fight Club and The Big Lebowski communicate through the vocabulary of ironic detachment to critique meta-narratives that would lead you to believe in things like objective truth or goodness. These stories are not offering you a solution or proposing a positive framework for you to find meaning in and live within. It's just out there to demolish whatever they perceive as the failed systems, institutions, and values of the modern story, which led to what many postmodern thinkers perceived as the unjust systems of oppression and colonization. Even our notions of what constitute like a fair meritocracy are critiqued in the postmodern story. But if you went through Fight Club, and like me, you know, I, I kind of straddled both of those worlds. I, I'm born in 83. I certainly grew up with all of these like great modernist stories, compelling modernist stories, and, you know, not just Top Gun, <laughs> but like, you know, these, these, these stories of the individual 
rebelling against the unjust or incompetent hierarchical institutions, following their gut, that you have access to the truth, all of these affirmations, that you can actually achieve higher social status because of your abilities to work hard, you know, the Michael Jordan sort of work ethic. I grew up with that, but I also found in my teenage years this shift happening. And so movies like Fight Club were really important. But if you got done with Fight Club and you were like, yeah, dude, what's the point of working so hard, working the, you know, to try to make my way up and, and through the top ranks of the corporate ladder just to fill my house with meaningless overpriced furniture. If you listen to the Fight Club critique and you got to the end of the movie and you're like, all right, now what's the story that I can actually live within? You found nothing but nihilism. And so you can't live in that story. You're like, hey, I can't do all this ironic cynicism all the time. Like, I, I actually have to live in a story. And so this desire to live within a story, to find a story that you can actually live in, that you can experience hope, that you can experience actual, like, sincere, meaningful connection with other human beings, that is the drive that's pushing us into metamodernism. You underestimate how the smallest decision can compound to significant differences over a lifetime. Metamodernism is ultimately an effort at positive meaning and an effort to inhabit a story. Here's the deal. You can't go back to the Top Gun days, though. Like, as much as people wanted to a Top Gun maverick, postmodernism forced you to be aware that you're not objectively perceiving reality through some unfiltered lens. You're enmeshed within a culture, and, and now you've got all within your culture, you've inherited all of these, these biases. And so you have to be able to somehow, even on your pursuit of meaning, you have to show some level of self-referential awareness that you're in a story too. Obviously, you want to see yourself as Maverick, whose gut instincts leads him to the truth, leads him to save the day. But then here comes like, oh yeah, the postmodern critique is like, dude, have you ever stopped to consider whether or not the unnamed enemy, I always love that in the Top Gun movies, you don't actually know like what nation or entity the enemy is. Have you ever stopped to wonder whether or not the enemies were possibly the good guys? If you don't wrestle with that critique at all, then you kind of are like trying to revert back to this nostalgic modern story. That's not what metamodernism is about. Metamodernism is like, yeah, okay, so what if the enemies were the bad guys? How would I figure that out. So maybe I'm aware of that. And yet I still actually want to affirm positive meaning and have a hopeful way at getting at sincere communication and sincere community with other people. So maybe I can still just choose the Top Gun story. What you see in metamodernism is a self-referential awareness that you know you are situated in a story and you are aware of other stories, but you're still choosing to live within a particular story. And the primary way within metamodernism that you communicate that self-referential awareness, 
that self-awareness that you're situated within a story, the primary way you do that is through irony. Self-aware irony is the primary mode of metamodern communication and aesthetic. But as I talked about in my video, why Creed is making a comeback, which discussed the band Creed and metamodernism, there's a way you can communicate through irony and push beyond irony back into sincerity. We can call this technique embracing the cringe. And it's the key to understanding metamodernism. Embracing the cringe is all about being self-aware that the story you're living in may or may not be true. But if you're telling me that all stories mask a play for power, then so does that story. So I'm going to pick a story anyways. It's like going, I know Creed might not have the most complex musical arrangements. They might not be as musically complex as the band Radiohead, but that doesn't make Radiohead like objectively good. Someone who's an expert in the music of Chopin or Beethoven is going to look at Radiohead and go, Radiohead isn't as musically complex as either of them. So you can look at all of that and go, this critiquing will never end. And if that's going to be the case, I'm just going to love me some Creed. So now that you hopefully have this basic understanding of what metamodernism is all about, let's talk about what this means for religion. And as I'm a professing Christian, I want to focus in on what this means for Christianity in particular. Christ is always working in culture. You can go back to my Christ and Culture series and find that on the Deep Talks podcast to hear a bunch of lectures on Christ and culture, theology and culture. But as we affirm Christ is always working in culture as Christians, we must also ask, is Christ presently here in this movement? Where do we see both harmony and dissonance with the historic way of Jesus? So what does the metamodern shift mean for Christianity in America or in the West more broadly? The first thing that stands out to me is that this metamodern shift is driving people towards stories that offer them a sense of positive meaning and offer a structure for community to live within. And this actually gives me a lot of hope for a resurgence of the Christian story and Christian community in the West. But you'll notice that the vocabulary and the aesthetic of modernism won't allow for just pure, naive sincerity. The gateway to positive meaning must still pass through irony and self-awareness. You might be noticing this too, but I've been noticing that there has been this resurgence happening among more what we could call ritual oriented expressions of the Christian tradition. I'm talking about Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Anglicanism, for example. There's something almost hyper-ironic for people who may have inhabited what is often called like seeker-friendly evangelical churches. And you know, many of these what we call seeker-friendly evangelical churches are actually trying to use the vocabulary and aesthetic of pop culture to appeal to people who have been non-churched or we might call it poorly churched and to get them 
to attract them to the Christian story and Christian community. But there's almost like this hyper ironic appeal of going to church that doesn't actually look like a rock concert or a TED talk or a sporting event for people. Remember, the key to metamodernism is to embrace the cringe. Many evangelical churches are so driven to be culturally relevant that their efforts at relevance are actually very cringe and they aren't aware that it's cringe. Your, your band at your local church, probably despite its best efforts, isn't Bethel and it's not Elevation. And if anyone that's actually in those churches' bands like walks into the local bar in their city or their town, they're going to find that nobody there cares who they are. Nobody knows them. They're not actually rock stars. Is this Christian celebrity thing the thing that actually is going to bring people into the Christian story and Christian community? And there's some critiques there, but a lot of places aren't aware of those critiques. And without being aware, they can't embrace the cringe. They're just living with that, what we might call non-self-aware cringe. But here's the thing. If you're sitting through a Latin mass where you don't even actually understand what the priest is saying, he doesn't care whether or not he's cringe. That's kind of the self-aware cringe that's attractive in metamodernism. It's the one where people aren't trying to be and don't care if they're cringe or not cringe, popular or not popular. And this is going to sound like quite the paradox, but the key to communicating the beauty of Christ in the metamodern frame is to be aware you're not really that cool or interesting. What you're doing isn't saving the world. It's simple, mundane, and boring. And the key is that you just don't care. You embrace the cringe. Remember, people are actually after sincerity, not the branding of we're authentic. And there's a difference. They're after genuine sincerity, not what has become the branding of authenticity. The label, we're authentic, it's lost its value. If you have to advertise your authenticity, that is non-self-aware cringe. A second interesting factor that we need to consider as we think about the connection between metamodernism and Christianity is that we need to be aware that metamodernism is signaling that people are burnt out on deconstruction. Don't label yourself or your church community the anti-this or the anti-that. Don't sell that you're the contrarian church. Now, that sort of stuff might have worked with kind of like the Gen X and geriatric millennial, I'm pointing to myself here, that might have worked with Gen X, geriatric, millennial, postmodern church culture, but that's not what people are looking for anymore. And it's actually, aside from that, it's just a really bad foundation for building a community. If you make what you're against the center of your community, what you will find is that eventually 
the thing that people will be against is the community. And then what's going to happen is that community will eventually disintegrate or it will break apart very painfully. Putting deconstruction at the center of your community, I'm telling you, I've seen it, I've lived some of it, and you're gonna see more and more of this. I'm not rooting for it, it's sad and it's tragic, but when deconstruction is at the center of your community, the community will eventually deconstruct. Metamodernism is driving people towards hopeful reconstruction, not deconstructive cynicism. Wholesomeness is the new cynicism. Tyler Durden is passe. It's Ted Lasso's. It's the Joe Perez that people actually want to be around. It's the post-ironic sincerity. So the last thing I want to talk about here is that another key feature of this self-awareness I think has to be embodied by those who wish to connect using the vocabulary and aesthetic of the metamodern age with a hurting world around them is that you need to understand if you're really going to be self-aware, you have to familiarize yourself with the various stories outside of the story that you find yourself choosing to live within. And for me, that means like I need to have a awareness, not only of my broad Christian story, but the reality that I live in a particular Christian story. I live in one that has harmony and dissonance with other Christian traditions. So I need to be aware of that. I need to have awareness of the different traditions. You know, I've talked about today, like Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. I've learned a lot from Roman Catholic theologians, Eastern Orthodox theologians. I learned a lot from the East and the tradition of the West. I don't claim to be in either one of those traditions, but I have an awareness of it. Not only should one have an awareness of the, maybe the, the, the different um, neighboring families within the Christian tradition, but you also need to have an awareness of the stories that might look radically different than your Christian story. People are engaging with different cultures all of the time. They are constantly engaging with different stories outside of the Christian story all the time. And so if you want to help them navigate that and to live within their story well, you need to help them become more aware of those stories, which means you, if you're a leader, a pastor, if you're a parent trying to raise kids a particular way, you need to help them navigate those other stories with you being aware of the other stories. We have to realize that people are going to still be deeply suspicious, especially those that have not been raised within the Christian story or Christian community, that there are going to be people that are deeply suspicious about the connections between Christianity and colonialism, between Christianity and the forces of empire. And so this is really, really important point. You're going to have to probably be able to navigate those difficulties well, maybe admitting to some of those really sad instances in which, yes, the story of Christianity was presented in a particular way to be used as a tool that actually caused harm instead of the flourishing of the world. You should be aware of that. But simultaneously, it might be helpful to distinguish, like I often do, the differences between like Christendom or Christianity and the way of Jesus. And by doing that, I think that can be helpful for people to navigate. Well, what, what do you mean? We're talking about Christianity and, and, and this 
one of the great examples of this to me is uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher. Many people consider to be like the father of existentialism, nothing he ever called himself. But engage with the work of Kierkegaard is a great example of this. Kierkegaard is constantly differentiating between the, the Christendom of his culture, which he often sees as, or always sees as being a, a horrible distortion of the true way of Jesus. So I think knowing those distinctions, being able to name those distinctions is important. It's going to help you communicate well with people coming from the metamodern frame who maybe have never been churched, maybe they've been poorly churched. It's also important for me so that I can make sure that I'm checking my own biases and I'm not doing the sort of empire building Christendom. It's important for me to have at least a basic awareness and competency of the other stories, the other guiding stories of the world. And by guiding stories and comparing other guiding stories, I'm referring primarily to having an awareness of the other major religious traditions out there so that I can be able to dialogue well with them. And by dialoguing well with them, I also want to dispel this what probably would be the most colonizing version of religion possible. And I want to dispel the notions that Engaging in religious dialogue together with people of different backgrounds and different traditions means assuming this sort of what we might call like unitive pluralism represented in someone like the theologian John Hick. I can't think of anything that is more colonizing than saying, well, essentially all of the religious traditions are all saying the same thing. They're not. Saying that they are erodes cultural distinction and actually tries to force everybody into this peculiar, singular mono religion. And that, my friends, that I can't think of anything that would be a more colonizing force than that. We're going to erode all religious distinctions. People that are on maybe what we might say like the underside of history don't want that. They don't want like this kind of Western liberal elitism to sweep the globe and to tell people, you know, your religion is essentially the same as this. Now, I am not saying that we revert to some sort of like really, really exclusivist fundamentalism instead. That's not what I'm talking about. But if I am a Christian, which I am, and I realize that if I were born, let's say in Somalia instead of the Midwest in the United States, that there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't be a Christian at the age of nearly 40 today when Somalia is 99.8% Muslim. I'm self-aware enough to realize that I'm a Christian today primarily because of my social and geographic location. Now, I think part of that postmodern impulse would be to take a statement like that and to say, well, because of that, you should probably be aware enough to just reject your Christianity because you're saying these factors are probably a couple of the primary determinants that influenced that outcome in your life. But okay, so what if I did do that? What if I did say, yes, I'm aware of my social location, that geography and my social environment have played a factor in living in this particular story and me choosing this particular story. And if I reject it, where do I go? What would I go to instead? Like, is there a story that's beyond 
culture? Is there a story that's free of any cultural influence or cultural bias if we want to frame cultural influence as bias? No, there isn't. So instead, like I've done my critical self-reflection. I'm constantly, more than I like to admit, doing critical self-reflection on the story that I'm living in. And I am challenging myself to be like, hey, Maybe I got a blind spot here. I'm very much open to hearing alternatives and I'm going to challenge through critical self-reflection my own location in that particular story. But if I sit down and I do that and I study the other religions of the world and I sit down maybe, you know, talking about a Somali Muslim, I sit down with a, a Muslim from Somalia and we're, we're talking together and, you know, we say, hey, uh, like he asked me, let's say this guy asked me, he says, hey, well... <laughs> Who do you think has the authoritative supreme revelation of God? The, the Jesus of your Christian gospels or Muhammad? Like, I'm just going to be honest and obviously say, I think it's Jesus. I can do that and still respect the fact that he's probably going to say, well, I think it's Muhammad. This is a different kind of pluralism. It's a different kind of pluralism than us feeling both of us feeling forced to say, well, there is no real distinction. What the apostles said about Jesus is essentially the same thing that Muhammad said about Jesus and what they both said about God. It just isn't true. And that sort of thing erodes distinction. So if we're both self-aware enough to be like, yeah, we get this is part of the story that we're living in and the story that we both I'm still saying I'm choosing to live in this story, but it doesn't discount the fact that I've had these cultural influences because of my social and geographic location. I'm not denying that. I can't deny that. To deny that would be absurd. To deny that would be non-self-aware cringe, okay? But I'm going to embrace the cringe. Like, I'm, I, I, I'm carrying my cringe. God, that's really cringeworthy. I'm going to carry my cringe. And what I'm going to say is like, yes, I've got to live in a story. There is no story that's free of any sort of cultural influence. This is absurd. I've got to live in a story. I've done my due diligence. I'm picking this one. And you pick that one. And if you ask me my opinion, I'm going to tell it. I'm not going to kill you for not sharing it. But I'm going to tell you, please tell me. And we are both aware of the story. And in that way, it's almost like, I, I think this is what is probably going to need to happen if Christian communities are going to be successful in engaging with broken and hurting people who are really wanting to step into a story. You have to demonstrate that self-awareness. And I don't know how you get that self-awareness without becoming a better student of culture and the world around you. And that's something I hope that I'm doing and helping you do together. Thanks for listening. I would love in the comment section to read your thoughts and perspectives. 
You can also participate in the discussion forum. If you're not watching this on YouTube and you're just listening to the audio only version of this podcast, you can also reach out and participate in the discussion forum on my Patreon page. This is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast. I can't do it without your support on Patreon. Unfortunately, YouTube is going to throw ads in, and so we've just come to accept that. <laughs> if you're just listening to the audio podcast and you didn't hear any ads, you can thank the generous supporters on Patreon and can consider becoming a supporter as well. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave your comments. You can reach out to me. You can also find me on Twitter. Uh, I don't know why I say, I always say Twitter with this weird like British emphasis or on X at Paul Anleitner. Till next time, we'll talk again soon, friends. Hey, I want to give an extra special thanks to the following supporters on Patreon. Clint, Jesse, Alex, Brandon, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., and Stephen Harper. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. If you want a shout out, become a supporter at the Theology 201 level or higher on Patreon. Get access to a bunch of other bonus Q&A episodes, opportunities for live discussions on Zoom with me and listeners from all over. Thanks again for watching.